Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you are here. What does it say for a guy when he just walks from here to there and his hip starts hurting? I don't know what, oh my gosh, I'm getting old. I told that to my doctor, I was doing a physical one time, and I said, man, I don't, for some random reason, I can walk across the room and my knee starts hurting. Should we check my knee? He goes, Bill, it's just called getting older. And I just looked at him and said, well, man, you're getting fat. You know that? <laughs> anyway, and we have a good relationship, but anyway. Good to see you guys. Glad y'all are here this weekend. Thanks for watching us online. It's so happy to, to welcome you. Next weekend, I wanna tell you, we got a very special service plan, so don't miss that. It's gonna be amazing, so we really wanna see you here. Good to see the Maxwell's down there. And uh, it's gonna be a wonderful, wonderful weekend, so bring somebody you know, and uh, we're gonna have a great time. It's, it's good to see people feeling more and more comfortable about coming back on the campus, you know, after we get on the other side of all this COVID crazy. And uh, so I'm happy to that. And our online attendance just has just exploded. We stream on three platforms with YouTube, MetChurch Live, and Facebook. So if you ever have an issue finding us on one of those, jump to the other one and you should find it there, no problem. But I'm glad you're here. We're in a new series called The Good Life. The Good Life. And it's really about looking at one of the greatest, if not the greatest message that was ever preached by anyone in all the world. And that's the message that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there is this piece called the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, you really find the secret to the good life. This is a way whereby God has designed for you and I to live. Now, when you look at the Beatitudes, there's like eight Beatitudes. And each of those Beatitudes is a beautiful description of who Jesus is. If you want to know a characteristic of Christ, look no farther than Matthew 5. Look at those Beatitudes. And by the way, when Jesus taught the Beatitudes, he was teaching those like us, who would late, later follow him, and he was basically saying to us, these are the things that are qualities that should be in your life. All of the things that we're talking about in the Beatitudes should be things that are within the grasp of a Christ follower that should be characteristics of our life. And if you have not yet chosen Jesus to be your Savior, once you know him as Savior, these are qualities that then can be a part of your life. So it's a beautiful study, it's a wonderful study, and I hope you enjoy it as, as much as I am. So in Matthew 5, look at, at it with me in your Bible, if you will. If not, look at the screen. The Bible says, seeing the multitudes, Jesus goes up onto a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him saying, uh, or his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I said when we started this, isn't it interesting that the very first thing, the very first quality, the very first beatitude that Jesus talks about is the poor in spirit. Now, as I said when we did this a few weeks ago, that doesn't mean poverty, it means, uh, it means humility. In fact, if you want to substitute that expression, poor in spirit, and put the word humble in there, it doesn't do any disservice to the text. What Jesus was saying are blessed are the humble. Blessed. Isn't it interesting that that was the first thing he talked about? And the reason I think that was a priority is because that's the thing most Christ followers deal with. The longer you know Christ, if you're not careful, you can become prideful. It's evident in how Christians look at people who aren't yet Christians. 
Christians can be judgmental and we can pontificate and we can look down our noses at people who do not yet know Christ. Churches that buy into that become churches who simply say, us four, no more, shut the door. <laughs> and as long as I have my fire insurance policy in my pocket, I could care less who lives and goes to hell. Now, they don't say that out loud, but that's kind of the philosophy of the ministry because it's rooted in spiritual pride. In fact, I contend that pride was the original sin. If you read in Isaiah 14 and you want to see a description of the devil, what made the devil the devil was pride. Five or six times it says there in that passage, he says, I will ascend above the heavens and I will be like the most high God and I will be like God. And the Bible says the moment God saw, uh, saw pride in the heart of the devil, it said what followed it was iniquity. And I tell you, that's the pattern. <laughs> Where there's pride, there'll soon be iniquity. The root word of iniquity is crookedness, deceit. So when a person becomes full of pride, the next thing they do is they become full of deceit. And, and at the heart of that is spiritual pride. At the heart of that is looking down at other people, feeling that you're, they're in a position to judge other people, to judge a ministry, uh, to judge a business. It's pride. It's pride. So Jesus opens the Beatitudes by saying, tap the brake on that. Be careful getting on the pride ride, because when you get on that ride, it's going to take you in a bad place. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. So I'm just suggesting that when Jesus starts this thing, he says, blessed are the humble. And then the next one says, blessed, note now, are the, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Corey did a great job last weekend talking about this beatitude. And it's not necessarily the mourning of the loss of a loved one, though that's certainly true. What Jesus is really talking about here is mourning over our sinfulness. Having enough humility to recognize the fact that we're not in a position to judge anyone or anything. It's living life with a sense of, of uh, God, I'm not worthy. It's all about you. It's not about me. I've told you before, it's sad to see a humble savior and a proud sinner. So when Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes, he's saying real true humility brings about a sense of our own sinfulness. It doesn't cause us to criticize or critique, but instead it brings out a sense of humility and self-awareness. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are humble. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. And then this weekend, we're going to look at this. Blessed are the meek, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, what do you think about when you hear the word meek or meekness? Uh, it doesn't set real well on people's ear because most people think meekness is weakness. And so most people kind of reject the idea of being meek because they think to be a meek person means you're a doormat. That as a Christian, you know, you turn the other cheek and that just simply means that you take it. You, you, you never defend yourself. You never stand up for yourself or anyone else. You just let people run over you because after all, you're meek. That's a terrible understanding of what that expression means. And we're going to look at that a little bit because it is a quality that really um, identifies who Jesus was. Jesus was no doormat. <laughs> People didn't knock him around or run over Jesus. And so Jesus, the Bible says concerning him, he was, he was meek and lowly. Really, if you understand what meekness is, meekness is the ability to control your strength or to, as my title says, to channel your strength. Meekness doesn't mean you're weak. It means you know how to handle the strength that you possess. It means you have enough wisdom to know when to stand up and when to speak up, when to sit down and when to shut up. <laughs> you, are, you are meek. 
And so this is a quality of Christ, and this is certainly something that we should emulate. In fact, the Bible uses this as an illustration. Probably the most effective leader in all the world, or in all the Old Testament, I should say, in the then-known world, was Moses. Incredible leader. Um, probably the pastor of the Old Testament. Moses led a, a million people out of Egypt through the great exodus toward the promised land. No, there's no one that has not heard of Moses. And if you want to talk about an amazing leader, I don't know how many people that you manage or how many people you lead, but none of us has ever gotten close to handling a million people. Can you imagine? Wow. And so this is Moses. And when the Bible talks about how effective and successful he was, you would think the secret to Moses' success was he was assertive, that he was demanding, that he would be threatening, that the reason Moses was a great leader is because he didn't take anything off of anybody, my way or the highway. <laughs> if you don't like this, hit the door. I can fire you. I'll, I'll, I'll take you out and make another one look just like you. You know, you'd think that that was the spirit of Moses. But can I give you a description that might blow your hat in the creek? Look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, Moses was a very meek man. What? Where's this assertive and where's this arrogance and where's this in control and where's this dominant spirit? The Bible says Moses was a meek man. Now, keep reading. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. This was the greatest leader of the Old Testament. And when the Holy Spirit says, I want to underscore the secret of his effectiveness and the principles of the power of his leadership, it was tied to this man's meekness, to his humility. And in his humility, he found greatness. So don't miss that principle and don't miss that beatitude because as we go about trying to be successful and effective in our careers and we go about it by thinking you gotta be arrogant and assertive and you gotta be in control all the time, let me tell you, that flies in the face of what Jesus is teaching. He's saying blessed are the meek, the humble, those who are aware of their own sinfulness and their own weaknesses. And there is a sense in which if we're going to be effective in our life, we need to understand what it means to be meek. Let me give you some words to consider when we think about what it means to be meek. It's to be kind. It's to be gentle. It's to be submissive. It's the idea of approaching people caring more about their outcome than yours, having an interest in others, not a self-interest. And all of that is encapsulated in this idea of meekness. So you say, okay, Bill, I get that. So how do you do that? Good question. Let me give you two or three things to think about before we go home. The first step to really achieving meekness and walking in it each day is understanding this power of being controlled. The power of being controlled. What is controlling you? Can I suggest to you that everybody in this room, we're being controlled by something. We're being controlled by someone. I have an old nature, you have an old nature, I have a new nature, you have a new nature. And one of those natures will dominate our life. One of those natures, the nature that I was born with, a sinful nature, a nature that is apart from God, or a new nature when I receive Christ that now has the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, one of those natures will dominate my life. And I would just say it's the nature you nurture that determines that outcome. And there are three controlling influences on those natures. Three controlling influences. There is the influence of a human spirit, 
a human spirit. We're all born with a human spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said, I pray that your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord. You and I are a spirit and a soul, a spirit and a soul that inhabit a body. So we're trichotomy, we're three parts. And the spirit has to do with one's attitude. We have a spirit, we have an attitude. And the Bible says in Proverbs, get this, the spirit of a person will determine how they deal with infirmity. We have doctors and we have a lot of people in the medical profession, many of them here this morning and watching online who will tell you that the outcome, uh, the, the effective outcome of a patient a lot of times is tied to their attitude, their spirit. A patient more optimistic and a patient who has a more positive outcome tend to recover quicker, and, and they're a lot easier, by the way, to take care of <laughs> than one that doesn't have that outcome. What's the point? There's a power within the human spirit. God gave us that. But I'm saying if you're not careful and you allow that spirit to control you, you're going to be in trouble a lot of times. We don't have all the facts. We don't know everything we need to know. You see, we're all ignorant. We're just ignorant on different subjects. So if I'm allowing the influence of my spirit to control me, I'm going to be in trouble. But there is a, we all have a need to be in control. I get that. If you doubt what I just said, go home and see who handles the remote control. Is that an issue in your house? I don't know about you, man. I got to have that remote control. I got a little control issue with the remote control. And if one of the grandbabies come over and that thing is missing, oh my gosh, it's a forensic search. I'm pulling cushions off the couch. I'm not eating for days. I got to have the remote control. Remember when you as a kid were the remote, you were the remote control? We had four channels when I grew up. I was the remote control. Bill, put that on channel 11. Channel 11. Channel surfing was click, 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 click. No problem. So I'm saying everybody has, if, if you doubt that, then uh, if you're on a road trip, who drives? Who wants to drive? Who demands to drive? Who needs to drive? <laughs> There's this need we have to be in control. I get that. So part of the controlling factor in our lives sometimes is our spirit. Here's a second influence. Not just a human spirit. Listen, there's a hellish spirit. Did you know there's an evil spirit in the world? You know there is a personality called the devil who has demons, and those spirits seek to control our life. And when we're trying to be in control, the evil one is trying to get us, you ready, out of control. He's trying to separate us from God and separate us from the purpose of God in our life. I told you before, his, his, his motive is twofold. Number one, to keep you from ever trusting Jesus. He wants to keep you away from God. If you've never received him as Savior, he will fight hard to keep you from ever coming to that point where you'll receive Jesus. He'll use good examples. He'll use bad examples. He'll use good examples of bad examples. He will use people. He'll use circumstances. He'll use anything he can to keep you away from Jesus. That's his number one tactic. Now listen, if you then get past him and you get to Jesus, the second strategy is he wants to keep you from making a difference for Jesus. And he does that simply by getting you disillusioned, getting you disappointed. Listen, if he can knock you out, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what knocks you out just so you get out. It can be a legitimate thing. It can be an illegitimate thing. It can be your perception of something that's true. It can be your perception of something that isn't true. He doesn't care. As long as he can get you out, as long as he can create division, 
As long as he can get you separated from God's purpose for your life and put you on the bench instead of on the field, mission accomplished. He doesn't care. So that influence is there, always there. My own spirit, the hellish spirit. Number three, there's a Holy Spirit, the presence of God. So if my spirit wants to be in control, a hellish spirit wants to get me out of control, then the Holy Spirit, watch this, wants to keep me under control. In fact, when you read Galatians 5.16, here's what he says, walk in the spirit. Get the phrasing, not sit in the spirit, not run in the spirit, walk. Why is that? Because Paul is saying walking is something that's common. We do that every day. Walk in the spirit. We just walk. Walk in the spirit. You're going to walk to the car. You walk out of here in a minute. Probably not going to run. Hope the message isn't that bad. But you'll probably walk out of here and you'll just kind of leave that way. So when you walk in the spirit, it means a daily discipline. You're doing this every day. But here's the payoff. He said, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know the best guarantee for, for not messing your life up? Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I've told you before, people who do things they shouldn't do are people who stop doing things they should do. Because if you'll do what you should do, you can't do what you shouldn't do. People who start doing what they shouldn't do start, stop doing what they should have been doing. So the best way not to mess it up is tomorrow say, I'm gonna do what I should do, and if I do what I should do, I can't do what I shouldn't do. Isn't that profound? Walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be under the spirit's control. It's interesting, when you think about meekness, it's the same word that horse trainers would use to describe a horse when the horse is broke. A horse is tame. It's meek. I've got horses. I've had, had horses on and off all my life. I've got two beautiful horses now, big horses. One's about 15 hands. The other's close to 16 hands. They weigh over 1,000 pounds. Beautiful quarter horses. Love them. And I can tell you, those horses are powerful. But the reason that I can be around them and the reason I let my grandbabies around them is they're meek. They've been trained. They're under control. Now, when I go out there and I feed those horses or I mess with them or I ride with them, I respect them because they're powerful. They can hurt you. If you get kicked, they can kill you. <laughs> but the reason I don't panic and I'm not stressed about them all the time is they're meek. They are strength and power under control. Can I tell you, every one of us in here, we have a power, we have a strength, and the secret to the power and the strength is to keep the power and strength that we possess under control. So the first step in moving in this direction is to keep under control. I love what the Bible says concerning Jesus in Luke twenty-two forty-two. You remember what Jesus said? Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. What was that? He was under control. I mean, if Jesus, the greatest example, if Jesus, our heavenly father, if Jesus, our savior, if he lived his life under the control of the Holy Spirit, then listen, we need to follow that example. So the first thing is by being controlled. Secondly, by being compliant, by being compliant. In other words, I yield to the right thing. I yield to the right person. Who, whose voice is in your head? Who do you listen to? Who, what person have you allowed to be authority figure in your life to allow them to kind of shape your opinion and shape your direction? Let me tell you what might help some of you with this, if you struggle with that. Your life will be guided by one of two things. Your life will be guided by the priorities you establish or by the pressure you face. 
You're either going to live according to your priority or according to other people's pressure. You ever play pinball? <laughs> Remember that? Is that still a thing? I don't know. Um, anyway, you ever play pinball and you watch that ball just bouncing off the flippers and the bumpers and the thing? That's people who aren't living according to priority. They're responding to this problem and responding to that crisis and answering that email and jumping on that text and, oh my gosh, I got to do it. And they're ding, ding, bing, bong, 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 bong. They're just bouncing around while somebody else is controlling the flippers. And a person that gets into that zone becomes kind of a people pleaser. And when you're in that trap, then you get home and you've pleased everybody but you. And you're the most miserable person in the world. And what I would tell you to do is take some time out of your life, maybe go to a lake somewhere, go to a, just take a vacation day or two, hit the pause button and say, I got to reel my life in. I've been living according to pressure. Now I'm going to start living according to priority. Now I can give you priorities from the Bible. I can give you five. I, I would start in your life with where the Bible starts. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Now that's not God in relationship to ministry or church. That's God just in relationship to your relationship. I tell people all the time, man, if you elevate church or your religion to that priority, you get into legalism. That, that, that's not where church goes. It doesn't go as the priority. It can't be the top priority of your life. It has to be your relationship with your heavenly father. In the beginning, God. What Jesus say in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except, but he didn't say your church or your denomination, or he didn't get into any of that. He said, I am the way. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from your religion or your church. So the first thing I would ask you is, is he there? Is that the priority of your life? The second thing, in the garden, God established um, a relationship, a marriage. So you have your spouse. Is, is your spouse in that priority? Do they feel that priority? Do they know how significant and important they are? And let me tell you, where I stand before you in this season of my life, you'll be glad one day that you made them know they were that priority. Trust me. So you have your heavenly father, you have your spouse. The next thing is you have your kids. <laughs> Those kids came along. And so that's the, the, the next thing was their career, their job. Remember what God said to Adam? Take care of this place. Keep the garden. Now, he said that before sin enters the picture. So God created us to work before sin. Somebody said, well, if it weren't sin, we wouldn't have to work. That's not true. God designed us to do stuff. If you're not doing something, if you don't work, you're going to feel worthless. You got to do something. Take care of something. Plant something. Plow something under. <laughs> do something. <laughs> so I'm just saying, God designed us for God, for, for our marriages, for our children, for our careers, and then church, there's a form of worship. After sin, you have the altar. The, the, he taught them how to worship. So I would put worship there as that fifth priority. And listen, when those priorities are done right, one should never uh, contradict the other. I tell our ministry team all the time, if your work for the church is creating tension within your home, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. If, if your career is creating tension in your marriage, you're doing it wrong. I'm not being hard on you. I'm talking from experience. Man, when Cindy and I started this church with our kids and a core of people, let me tell you, it was all hands on deck. It was a seven day a week. It was just go, 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 go. And I mean, all of a sudden we are working. Some of you started businesses. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are in business for yourself. You know what I'm talking about. But you know what made that happen without Cindy killing me? 
is we had an agreement. We were in it together. We understood that we're in a season where it's going to take a lot of sacrifices to get this ball going and to get this ministry happening, and it was a team effort. And I'm just saying, sometimes you got to sit down and you have to talk about where you're trying to go and say, look, we're, we're doing this wrong. I'm feeling that we're, we're, we're not pulling together. I feel like we're pulling apart. So let's get on the same page here. Let's get our priorities established because when you do it right, one thing doesn't affect the other thing. Does that make sense? So I'm saying when you look at the life of Christ, man, he's setting this example. Look in John 6, 38. He said, look, I came to do not my will. This is compliant. I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father. I work for him. I came to follow his direction for my life. So you have Jesus under control. You have Jesus compliant. Here's the third one. You see this effective in your life by being contrite. The idea of contrition. And boy, that's such a powerful thing because back to what most people think leadership is, arrogant, control freak, assertive, pushing their way forward, demanding respect, threatening. And yet the secret to an effective leader is contrition. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Let me illustrate this before we go home. You remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion? You remember when Jesus rides into the city? You remember what he rides into the city on? Anybody remember? He rode in the city on what? A donkey. <laughs> I told you I love horses, right? Donkey. A donkey? Can I tell you, if I were the, one of the boys and I was going to stage that entry, I'd have him on an amazing quarter horse. Seriously. Beautiful. I'd have, you know, he had that long hair, he had that robe. Jesus already looked strong. I'd take him over to Best Hats and I'd get him a great hat. I'd get it creased up just right. Honestly, I'd get that hat creased. I'd get him some great Lucchese boots or something, or maybe, you know, go over to Rod Patrick, get some great boots, and I'd get, man, Jesus, I would just get him. He'd be rocking the look. I mean, I'd have him on that horse. I'd say, Jesus, you're looking strong. And then I'd have all of us, all of us apostles. I'd, and we'd have some great quarter horses. We'd be looking good. And I'm telling you, when we came, it would look like tombstone. It would look like the posse is hitting. I mean, we'd have rode in there. Look, you know what I mean? Think about that image. Wouldn't that have been strong? We'd been riding in Jerusalem. Man, look at, uh, look at the boy. We're strong, man. We're on the horses. And I, oh, it'd be awesome. Jesus, he's the man. But he came in on a donkey? I wouldn't have staged it that way. I, I would have wanted a different visual. That doesn't project strength. That doesn't project power. Let me contrast that and tell you what was going on on the other side of the city at the very same time. Many scholars believe that at the very same time Jesus came into the city on this side on a donkey. On the other side from the Mediterranean coast, from a city called Caesarea, named after Caesar, little ego there, was Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is entering the city at the same time Jesus is on the donkey. He's on the other side. He's coming in. He ain't on no donkey. He's in a chariot. Horses. Soldiers. Armed. Strong. And they're riding into the city large and in charge. For Jesus is on that little donkey making his way. Pilate is rumbling through the city. Get out of the way. We'll run right over you. These horses will stomp you under there. You just need to get, look out. 
We don't care about you. Get out of the way. But let me ask you something. Which of the two men had the power? Was it the man who was projecting the image and shouting and demanding and raising his voice and threatening? Or was it the man on the donkey who had the power? Go a little farther. You see the contrition of Jesus as he approaches the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, listen, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. He's talking about the cross. He made himself of no reputation. You know what they were saying about Jesus? They were saying he's a drunkard. They were saying he's a liar. They were saying he's a blasphemous man claiming to be God. They were calling him every name in the book, and yet... Paul said in Philippians 2, 7, he made himself of no reputation. He didn't demand his reputation. I've been in leadership a long time, been doing this a long time. And I can tell you, as a leader, many of you, you're leaders in your careers, and you understand what it's like. Time to time, leaders make hard decisions, difficult decisions. You get picked apart. You get criticized. It goes with the turf. I'm a big boy. We know what that's like, right? It happens. Years ago in my other church, I'd made a big decision. And it created some ripples. I had some people that didn't like the decision that I'd made. And I was offended. I was a younger guy. So I felt the need to defend myself. You ever feel that way? And I just need to get my strategy down. I need to get my strategy. How am I going to handle this? How am I going to deal with this? And so I approached a man who was one of my mentors in life. He's in heaven today. His name's Adrian Rogers. I said, Dr. Rogers, I gave him the scenario made this call, made this decision. I know it's the right decision. I know it's best for the church. I know it's best for the staff. But I'm getting shot at over this. And I feel the need to defend myself. <laughs> you know what he said? He said, Bill, go to Philippians 2, verse 7. The Bible says Jesus made himself of no reputation. He didn't demand his And listen to this. He said, Bill, if Jesus didn't demand his reputation, who are you to demand yours? Let me tell you what happened to me. I rode into his office on a horse, and I rode out on a donkey. <laughs> I mean, I realized how arrogant I was to demand my reputation. But you know what he said? He said on this side of the cross, he made himself on no reputation. He said on the other side of the cross, he didn't need to worry about his reputation. Everybody knew the decision he made was the right one. He said, so when you make calls, you're on one side or the other. People are caught in the middle. But you give it time, people are going to say that was the right call. So on this side of it, don't demand, your, don't, don't complain and don't explain. <laughs> Stand by the calls you make and believe in the direction God is leading you. He made himself of no reputation. Keep reading. He took on the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion as a man. Notice what he did. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. And then it says, even the death of the cross. You see, it was one thing to die, but it was another thing to die on a cross. There was a stigma attached to the cross. In the Old Testament, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So there was a curse. There was a stigma. There was a reproach that a person had who was crucified. And Jesus bore the stigma. He was compliant to the will of his Father. And even when he was on the cross, think about this. 
The Bible says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, he could have called, get this, 12 legions of angels. My dad's old church, and some of you grew up hearing this old hymn, he could have called 10,000 angels. You ever hear that? You ever seen that? That's lowballing it. <laughs> he could have called 12 legions of angels. Now, it doesn't really fit the rhyme in the hymn, but it's, it's accurate. You know what a legion is? A legion is 6,000 soldiers. So a legion is 6,000. So if you have 12 legions, now check my math on this. I'm not really good at math, uh, but I know four out of three people aren't either. So here we go. <laughs> but when you go six times 12, that, is that 72? Is that pretty close? So that means, <laughs> thank you, Gary, my man. That means he could have called 72,000 angels. 72,000 angels. Now let me give you this, if you still aren't tracking, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35 says, one angel, one angel, 2 Kings 19, 35, one angel slew 185,000 soldiers, one. Wow. If one angel had the power to take out 185,000, how much power does 72,000 angels possess? Enough to wipe out the world many times over. What's the point? The point is when Jesus Christ hung on that cross, under control, compliant, contrite, he didn't have to do that. I believe with all my heart that every angel was marshaled on the edge of heaven watching for him to even move a finger to come. And they would have destroyed the world and rescued him from that cross. But he didn't. Why? because he was affecting salvation for mankind. So friends, when Jesus sat on that hillside that day and he looked at those that would follow him, he said, be humble. Don't strut. Don't get arrogant. Don't become judgmental. Don't start looking down your nose and criticizing other people or other ministries or this or that. You, you, that spiritual pride will bring you down. Mourn over your own sin. And then he said, be meek. Keep the power that you possess under control. And then he said, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The best God has for you is yours. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that never returns void, that always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. So now as we're about to break out of this big old holy huddle and go out into the real world, Help us to take something out of this room that we received in worship or from your word that will make us be more effective, more loving, more compassionate, more tolerant of people around us. I pray for those watching or those in the room maybe who have never trusted you as Savior, that this might be the moment where they just humble their heart and they say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. This is the prayer I pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.